So like I would never tell people actually, despite everything I said, <laughs> I would never tell people to not enter the field of design. I would tell people to challenge the field of design, um, possibly from the inside. Today's literal technical difficulties from ethics to inclusivity are by design. And Dr. Leslie Ann Noel shares how reflecting on positionality can improve design practices. She's currently an assistant professor of design at North Carolina State University and was previously at the University of the West Indies, Tulane, and Stanford D School. Leslie, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Hi, Liz. How are you? <laughs> thank Good. you for the invitation. <laughs> now we're going to get on to design-oriented questions, which is um, my favorite question to ask, which is, can you say a little bit about how you got your start in your um, career as a designer? When did it all begin, Leslie? So people ask me that all of the time, and I am almost embarrassed to say that I've been in design since middle school. So it's like if there is no start, you know. Um, I went to a school in Trinidad that had a very strong art and design curriculum. And I started off, I mean, you know, like, so this is middle school and high school. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think around 15, I did this exam. We have these exams. Um, so I did a design exam where I created a, a book with Christopher Columbus, it was a pop-up book with Christopher Columbus, and if you pull the pop-up tab, he fell off the earth. And ah! I just, <laughs> what was the I, prompt? What was the, the prompt the, for creating that? I love it. Prompt was that we had to create a history book, I think. So it was a graphic design prompt, and I, I, I wasn't satisfied with just graphic design. I wanted to include this making thing of you know um so I had to make the pop-up thing and this was a real exam like a three-hour exam so I had to do the illustration and then cut out and make the pop-up so I had sort of all the mechanism of the pop-up stuff and had probably dismantled other pop-up books to figure out how to make it and I thought it was the best thing I had designed ever <laughs> right but that whole thing of you know just pulling it and I I just thought it was funny him literally falling off the edge. And that was the end of it. It was just that two-page spread in this three-hour exam. Um, that is an interesting design memory for me. But actually, I think I have always been in design, worked in design. So it's hard for me to say when there was a moment. Um, because maybe being in design so long, maybe that's what impacts the way I think and talk about design today, you know, because when I think and talk about design, I'm not really trying to have conversations only with designers or, you know, very often I'm trying to look and say, well, cooking is design or, uh, you know, I'm trying to kind of bring design out of the design world in some of our conversations, you know, and trying to see how to start some of these design conversations a little bit earlier for, um, you know, like children and young people and, and stuff like that. What do you think will happen if you start them, the conversations earlier? Yes, that's a good question. I think that there is a kind of critical thinking that happens th throughout the design process. 
You know, and I think, okay, you know, if, if everyone is talking about, oh, we have to get more critical thinking and um, analytical thinking in school and whatnot, um, I think that there are different ways of introducing this type of thinking. And I think that through design, um, through embodied learning, through, you know, I think that that's another way of having these kinds of conversations. So, you know, the person who might not be able to enter the critical thinking conversation through another discipline might be able to get there as they think through all the elements of the design problem that they're working on. You know, there are a lot of questions I have to think through. Um, and I think that it can encourage a lot of engagement and depth. And, um, you, you know, so there are places where we might lose other people in the general curriculum. And I think that this could be a way of re-engaging or engaging people and then having some deep conversations, even like really, really deep conversations around things that mightn't seem so deep. Like, okay, I'm talking about, the, I was talking about the mugs. We could be asking more, um, we could bring in critical conversations about like, okay, where uh, is this clay sourced from? And then start a whole conversation about social something, something, something. For our listeners, can you please define critical design? I, I have used that term and I never know how to design it, <laughs> how, how to define it, right? You know, because I'm like, uh, I think we are trying to ask more questions. We're, we're trying to dig a lot deeper when we talk about critical question, um, critical design or, you, you know, we're trying to um, understand society, um, maybe understand where things are not working, you know, and then actively pushing against that. You came up with a beautiful deck, the designer's critical alphabet. And I'm curious how what inspired that and um, how have you seen people using it to be critical of design? I did a PhD in design, right? Um, in, and I finished around 2018. And when I was doing my PhD, I read a lot of critical theory, right? So I had to read... Um, I'm going to use critical a lot, right? And I still can't define it properly, right? But I had to read critical pedagogy, a lot of work in critical pedagogy. And critical pedagogy, um, there's a different kind of teaching that happens at critical pedagogy. And so, you, again, you're asking a lot of questions. Uh, the students are asking a lot of questions. You are maybe challenging society. You are um, defining and redefining um, concepts. And so what happened with the designer's critical alphabet is that, um, and I'll give you the scenario as well, but I wanted to bring some of those concepts that I had been reading about in critical theory to design, you know, so that we weren't just talking about is something pretty. Is it, you know, what colors are we going to choose? I guess some of the scenarios that led to the critical alphabet is that I was working with some students and I wanted the students to be looking at one, a more diverse group of stakeholders. Um, you know, I think accidentally the group of stakeholders that they were interested in was very homogenous, you know, and that in itself it's something that we have to think about as designers. If we leave it up to chance, 
the, the chances are that the groups that we will see will all be the same, right? And so the one thing with the alphabet, or well, the alphabet really started there where I just thought, okay, how am I going to shake things up and make sure that the students have to be looking at the needs of many different populations? And so I started off asking them to think about women, um, people of color, well, black people specifically, and children. You know, that was actually where the alphabet started. But throughout the rest of the semester that I was working with them, I, you know, something would happen in class and I'd say, oh, but I remember this term from whatever that I had read. How do I bring this little bit of theory into a design room or a design conversation? And so the, the, the cards in the alphabet are related to that, you know. Well, say the work that I did, I'll own it as my, you know, in the work that I did as a designer, I never had to think about um, I don't know if to say I never had to think about race, but you know, our decisions can sometimes be very superficial, um, or the way we might think about things can be superficial if we don't push ourselves to think harder. And that was what the alphabet was about: how to bring the theory that other disciplines use all the time. You know, people in social sciences and you know use this theory all the time. How do we bring it into a design conversation? You know, how do we make this stuff relevant to designers? That's beautiful. You recently co-edited a lovely book that you are calling The Little Book of Designers' Existential Crises in 2022. And I loved reading this. Um, one of the key messages or one of the prompts I understand for the book was if you're not in an existential crisis, you're not doing it right. And I think that's a lovely prompt. And I'd love to hear more about um, this message that you are sharing um, and a little more about the, about the book itself and the, the messages in the book. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so that is a, a, a book. That was a fun prompt, right? Um, but that's a, a, a little book that was created um, through um, a conversation at, in the Design Research Society. So I'm, I'm part of the Design Research Society. And we had, um, it actually started off as an attempt to get people from different areas of design or different groups within the Design Research Society to have conversations together, right? And so it was a conversation between um, the group that deals with global health, um, I'm the co-chair of the Pluriversal Design Group. Um, and then, so we particularly look at design from, let's say, a non-European and non-American perspective. And then we thought, well, what question could we be asking everybody? You know, I mean, we're all from these different areas of design. What is the question? And we started to have all of these little conversations. And then um, I believe I, I pointed out that if you are not in an existential crisis, <laughs> you know, you, then something's wrong because the thing is people who were trained in design maybe in the 90s maybe in the early 2000s um, maybe even later everything has changed around you whatever you were trained for probably no longer exists the attitudes that might have been normal 10 years ago are now frowned on today or you know so like everything has changed our the way we think about climate, the way we think about race, the way we think about even consumption. You know, if you're an industrial designer, you were trained to make things for people to consume, right? Like I remember a class that we did on 
planned obsolescence. And for people who don't know what planned obsolescence is, that is when the product becomes, uh, well, obsolete. You have to throw away the product because it's not, you know, it, it no longer works. So imagine we were thinking about these kinds of questions. The corporate yes. benefit was you'd buy more. Yes. Right? That yes. was right. And this was an yeah. intentional effort, planned obsolescence. Yeah, probably wasn't what we were supposed to do, but it was a, a conversation that we really had in class. And the way we framed that discussion in the mid-90s, we certainly could not frame the discussion like that today, you know, because everything has changed. And if you've been doing this for about 20 years, you're supposed to be asking yourself these kinds of questions, you know, like, oh, is this the same thing? You know, so we all kind of came to that kind of conclusion. And if you're not asking yourself these questions, then maybe you're just kind of going along. Maybe you're not thinking deeply enough. Two questions come from that is if you could paint a picture of the future of design 10 to 20 years out, what would it look like? Are we still all in an existential crisis? Are we in a new state? We will probably be in a new state. A lot of us are still using the umbrella term design. We are designers. There are these different philosophies then within design, I think, and those philosophies might lead to new branches or new areas of practice that might eventually get new names. So, you know, if I think about the future, I think, yes, some people will obviously continue in the areas that they're in now. But I think there is also within design, there is an anti-design movement almost. And I think maybe the anti-design people (laughs) might might get into a different area. Who I'm calling the anti-design today, right? Um, uh, Maybe that is more tied to ecological issues or less consumption or, you know, and maybe that's where the critical design is. The people who are asking all of these very difficult questions. And you see some of the difficult questions actually lead you to not design, Right. So that's what, you know, when I say anti-design, it's, it's kind of like that. Some of the questions and, and these are valid questions. You know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, do we need another X? Right. Or do we need to design for these people? So you teach designers. So given this fractured state of design, what advice do you give to your students about the field of design and about entering it? I don't know if I give them advice in that way about entering the field or not, you know. Um, The conversation that I tend to have with students um, is about making themselves relevant. And, you know, because I am very often trying to see how we can have general design conversations that are not so design specific, you know, I'm very often trying to figure out with students how can they... um, have conversations that everyone can understand. You know, how can we not only be talking to designers? You know, can we be having more conversations with people in education, with psychology, with, you know, I actually teach within an area within our college called design studies. And so we are often, um, my students are designers with less studio practice than, for example, the graphic designers or the industrial designers or the other areas, you know. So, I mean, they often have to reflect very deeply on 
the the research that they do and the connections that they can make with other or the conversations they can have with people in other disciplines right so like i would never tell people actually despite everything i said <laughs> i would never tell people to not enter the field of design i would tell people to challenge the field of design um possibly from the inside if we can look at our field and figure out okay this is not working this is how we change it. Another question. I think I'd be remiss unless I asked you about your experiencing editing the Black Designers Experience book. I found it really exciting to read how people created spaces for themselves, you know, and um, if you are othered in any way, um, if you are a woman, if you're disabled, if you are um, whatever form of otherness, you know, I think that the messages in that chapter are very clear about you making space for yourself because you are valid. For me, that, that was a really powerful message that I got from that chapter. Like I said, if you are othered, you feel that you're not alone after you read this book. You know, when you are the only black woman on a campus, well, the only black person on a campus, the only woman in an engineering program, which I'm sure you identify with. In the moment you feel so alone in reading these essays and like, oh, actually I'm not alone. If we come back to otherness, if you felt like you were excluded all the time and this person says, well, actually it is your time. You know, you need to take control. You need to do what you need to do. You know, and um, I think the, the kinds of messages that people can get from this book are about empowerment and liberation and taking control of situations and just charting a way that is centered in your beliefs and your identity. And, you know, we don't hear a lot of those messages. You've talked about design research as being transactional before. Um, can you explain what you mean by that and how we might go about changing that? Uh, you, you know, okay, I've made it about design research in the way that I talk. And maybe it's not just design research, maybe it is research, you know, sometimes in research, research is transactional, right? Where we, we have our own questions that we want to figure out and we just go into the community or we have our classes that we have to teach. Because um, I think in design education, it, it, you know, when we do this community work designed for social innovation work that we do very often it does get transactional because we're like okay we want to go into this community and we want to teach this the students xyz and here's our community partner we're going in to do this stuff and we leave and i don't know yet if i figured out how to make it less transactional right but every time i teach a class you know a class on social innovation or so again this is the critical thing Every time I teach it, I'm tweaking it because I'm conscious that it's not enough. Every now and again, I feel that transactional thing rising in me and I have to kind of swat it down and say, okay, stop, slow down. Very recently I had, I want to teach my class, right? So that's a transactional thing. I have a class that I have to teach and I want to work with this farm in a specific community the the person who i was engaged with because she's very political and whatnot she was able to point out <laughs> you know you university people come here and you want to do xyz and we're going to slow things down you know and 
So how do we make it less transactional? Maybe that's one thing, you know, slow things down, have more conversations. When we know that we're moving too quickly, we know that long-term impact really comes from longer relationships, you know, so um, I, I might disappoint you and not have answers, but I think asking more questions is part of the the answer is is part of the way to make it better you know what are you so excited about today what is exciting me today 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 is that i'm actually working on a book (laughs) and um we are so far along in the process that today i met with um the two editors that i'm working with i mean we're discussing artwork and this book is—I <laughs> shouldn't say this—but this book is so beautiful. <laughs> um, the artwork is just, just beautiful. Um, can you say what it's about? Yes, I can say what it's about. <laughs> All of the work that I do is about access, and the book is about designing for change. You know, making. Um, making social change. That might be all that I can see. <laughs> how can we find out more about you and your work? How can we follow, how can listeners follow your work? So I am very easy to find. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the best places to get updates. If you want to see where I travel to, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram are the best places to look for me. And any last words of advice for young female identifying designers of color that you might offer here? I, the advice that I would have for um, yeah, women of color, um, young or old, <laughs> right? Um, or, you know, we could even remove some of those adjectives for young people, for women, for people of color, you know, is that you and your work and your perspectives are needed. So show up as these identities, right? Um, even when the world is trying to tell you to fit in, you don't have to fit in if you don't. You know, we actually need people who don't fit in. So just come as that authentic person, right? Those are the perspectives that we need in design. Leslie, thank you so much. That was an absolute gift.